Anton Watson is having the best season of his career, showcasing a more versatile offensive game. Is that enough for NBA scouts to consider him in the second round of what is shaping up to be a historically weak 2024 NBA draft? You are Locked On Zags, your daily podcast on the Gonzaga Bulldogs. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. going on y'all welcome into the locked on zags podcast part of the locked on podcast network your team every day i'm your host and longtime gonzaga podcaster andy cotton here to bring you news and updates on all things zag athletics today's episode of locked on zags is brought to you by FanDuel. make every moment more folks right now new customers get 150 dollars in bonus bets with any winning five dollar money line bet that's 150 bucks in your pocket if your team wins so visit fanduel.com slash locked on today to get started. Happy Wednesday, folks. We got a mailbag Wednesday here coming at you for Locked On Zags. Didn't want to do it over Christmas and the day after Christmas, so bringing it to you here on Wednesday as we get prepared for, of course, Gonzaga's game on Friday evening against San Diego State. We'll have a preview of that game, what we're going to be watching for. We'll also have a fun discussion about the WCC leading into conference play and, of course, the future editions of Washington State and Oregon State. All that coming up later this week, but for right now, we got five Mailbag questions we're going to get to to get to get through this episode here. First one is going to take up this whole first segment. It is about Anton Watson here. Question comes from Jack via Gmail. Jack says, does Anton Watson have a chance at getting drafted? I know NBA scouts stay away from older prospects, but this class is being described as very weak. Could Watson sneak in? Love this question. Decided to break to branch it out into a full segment here to talk about it. Uh, in terms of the class, yeah, the, the, the 2024 draft class looks pretty weak right now. It was discussed as, as being so kind of even before the season even began, the 2023 recruiting class didn't look very good. So the, the opportunity for there to be some high level one and dones and and kind of freshmen who get drafted throughout the, the entirety of the first round just didn't look all that great. And, and frankly, a lot of players who were expected to be higher draft picks have not looked good. Justin Edwards at Kentucky hasn't looked very good. Isaiah Collier at USC has certainly had his struggles. Those guys are both still going to get drafted. But it's it's a class that lacks a lot of high-end talent. And as you get further down through kind of the, the late first round, the second round, uh, the late second round, certainly, you're just kind of missing a lot of players. You're going to be drafting either really young guys who you're looking for upside and at that point, any young players who have upside, they're getting drafted early because there's not a lot of high-end talent. If it was a deeper class, you'd see more 18, 19, 20-year-olds in the second round. But as it stands, I think a lot of those guys are going to be gone, and you're going to end up looking for maybe more older, established veteran prospects. Beyond that, I think what we've seen in the NBA is a bit of a shift. Not every team is making this shift. But we're starting to see more teams value drafting players who can contribute immediately as opposed to drafting players on upside. And frankly, it makes sense. And I'm not sure why it has taken NBA scouts and general managers so long to put this together. I think the one and done era has has potentially made people think that they have to draft youth and they have to draft upside. And certainly, you know, the, the superstars, players who are going to develop into superstars are probably getting drafted after their freshman year. Historically, that is accurate. But you're not drafting a lot of superstars in the late first round. And when you see teams like Miami take Jaime Jaquez, who's having a phenomenal rookie season, a veteran guy who spent all four years at UCLA, 
when you see the Denver Nuggets taking Christian Braun out of Kansas and the success he's had, taking Julian Strother after three years at Gonzaga, like you're seeing teams be more willing to draft older prospects because you only get four years before you have to pay them or let them walk in free agency. If you're drafting a 19-year-old, you got to hope by the time he's 22 or 23, he has showed you enough to convincingly hand him over a big bag of money for his second contract, his first non-rookie contract, or you got to let him go and, and hope that you didn't just kind of do all the development behind the scenes while somebody else pays him and gets a whole bunch of phenomenal years out of him. But if you're Anton Watson, you get drafted at 22, 23. By the time your rookie contract's over, you're 26, 27. People know who you are. They know the kind of caliber player. You look at Andrew Nemhard in Indiana. They, they drafted him first pick in the second round. They gave him a nice bag of money, and he's been great. He has exceeded the expectations that you would you would have for him as a second-round pick and was worth the bit, every bit of money that they gave him. Let's look at Anton Watson from a pros and cons perspective here from an NBA player because just because teams are more willing to draft older players and my opinion and many other opinions is that they should look to immediately contribute contributing players in the second round as opposed to taking you know flyers on 19, 20-year-olds doesn't necessarily mean that Anton Watson should or would or will be part of that conversation. Pros and cons for Watson. Pros, he's built like an NBA player. He's six foot eight. He's 225 pounds. He looks like an NBA player. The size, the strength, the physicality, all of that is absolutely in his bag. Defensively, the versatility that he offers. I think this is the biggest skill that Anton Watson can entice NBA scouts with. He can realistically guard three, four, and five at the NBA level. Three is borderline, depending on the on the player. Two is probably out of the question. I don't think Anton Watson uh, is athletic enough to guard NBA twos. It's not an overall shot on his athleticism, more that NBA twos are freaks and really, really good athletes. And I just don't think that's really his, his MO. But if he can guard threes, fours, and fives at the NBA level, if he can use his, his frame, his strength to potentially move around NBA centers, uh, if he can defend out on the perimeter against those stretch fours, those stretch fives, again, every big in the NBA can shoot threes, but Watson is capable to, to step out and defend those guys. And I think that's a huge selling point for him. The ability to get steals. Watson's hands are phenomenal. Some of the best in college basketball. He can strip the ball away from opponents. He's great at pressing, uh, at, at being in guys' grills defensively without committing fouls, knocking the ball loose, getting you know diving on the floor. Uh, he's a high-energy guy. Again, second in all-time in steals in Gonzaga basketball history. Yeah, he's a fifth-year guy, but he didn't just get there by luck. He got there because he's absolutely phenomenal. His basketball IQ is good, especially on the defensive end. Like The ability for Anton Watson to be an immediately – plus or at least above average defender in the NBA is absolutely there. I think that's hard to debate. Is he going to be the same caliber of defender as he is in college? No, probably not. But he is capable of being an above average defensive player in the NBA right now. He's a bit like Tumani Kamara, who plays for the Portland Trailblazers. And I want to make this comparison. I thought of it in my head, having watched a lot of Blazers games, and then grabbed Kamara's senior season numbers at Dayton before he was selected late in the second round last year. Kamara was a four-year player who got drafted late in the second round last year. A lot of similarities with Watson. Kamara at Dayton, senior year. 13.9 points, 8.6 rebounds, 1.7 assists, and 1.2 steals. Watson so far this year. 14.1 points, 7.8 rebounds, 2.5 assists, and 1.4 steals. So he is better in every category except rebounds, and he is basically, he's within one of all of them. Within 0.2 points, within 0.8 rebounds, within 0.8 assists, within 0.2 steals. 
Percentage-wise, Kamara shot 60.6% on twos, 36% from three, 67% from the free throw line. Watson is 57% on twos, 43% from three, and 63% from the free throw line. Pretty similar stuff. Meanwhile, Kamara has stepped into a starting role for the Portland Trailblazers. He is probably their second or th- no, it's not second, third, fourth, at times fifth best player as a rookie who was barely even drafted. Does that mean Anton Watson is going to have the same success? No, not necessarily. But it certainly means that teams should give him a look. And Watson has proven he's not only capable of being a role player, a fourth, fifth option offensively, he can also take over a game. Scouts need to watch that UCLA game. He had 32 points on 14 of 15 shooting. And I can hear some of you saying, oh, UCLA is not actually that good. Sure, you're right. They're pretty bad, but they're good defensively. They just can't score, but they are a good defensive team. And Anton Watson cooked them for 32 points. Cons for Anton Watson, fairly simple. The age, he's a fifth-year senior. He's probably going to be 23 years old when the draft rolls around. Teams don't like to draft old guys. Corey Kispert was an exception. We've seen it more and more, as I mentioned with Hawkes. Desmond Bain is a great example of a four-year player who was selected in the first round who's now a really, really good player. It's not that it doesn't happen. It's just rare. The other con for Watson is the offensive potential is limited. His ability to score around the rim just doesn't matter in the NBA. It just doesn't matter. It's not a skill that is that is coveted right now. If it was, Drew Timmy would be in the NBA. The fact that it's not means that that particular skill that Watson does possess, kind of irrelevant. For him, the offense has to come from the three-point line, and teams are not going to necessarily buy that he's a 43% shooter in his first 11 games of this season, when up to this point in his career, he has been nowhere close to that. And frankly, that's understandable. When teams are unsure about a player's three-point shooting, one of the areas they like to look at is free-throw shooting. Watson's not good at that. He's not a good free-throw shooter. He's never been a good three-point shooter except for this year. I'm inclined to believe that there is some growth in his three-point shot. I think that the numbers we saw from him early in his career are probably less representative than we see now. But if I was an NBA scout, I could certainly be like, I don't know. (laughs) Him shooting 43% so far doesn't necessarily mean a lot to them right now, and that's totally understandable. Athletically, I think there are some questions as well. He's a good athlete, but is he a great athlete? Is he an NBA caliber athlete? I think for Watson to get selected in the NBA draft, he is going to need to wow people with his scouting combine. The the combine numbers are going to have to be through the roof. The jumping numbers, the cone drills, all that stuff, he's going to need to be in the top tier percentile to get drafted. I'm not sure he's going to get there. I'm not sure that he is is that level of athlete to be there. But if he's in the bottom tier or even below the middle tier, I'm not sure that that's an, he'll, he'll get summer league looks. He'll, he'll absolutely get invitations uh, to play in summer league, might get a training camp invitation, two-way deal. Uh, I think all that stuff is definitely possible, but for him to get drafted, the numbers on that combine are going to need to absolutely pop. We'll have more Anton Watson draft coverage. We'll certainly look more at it as we get closer to June, as we get closer to the draft process. But wanted to kind of get a first glance at that as he's kind of one of the only players in this roster that I think is, is realistically going to be in that conversation at the end of this season. What I want to do now is take a look at a potential solution to Gonzaga's guard depth issue, as well as whether the Zags are cursed when Spokane hosts the NCAA tournament. All that coming up after a word from today's sponsor, FanDuel. Folks, as the weather gets colder, the college basketball offers, they stay hot on FanDuel. And right now, new customers can get $150 in bonus bets with any winning $5 Moneyline bet. That's $150 in your pocket if your team wins. So if you've been thinking about joining FanDuel, there is no better time than right now to get in on the action. 
The FanDuel app is really easy to use. There's a huge range of betting options, which includes spreads, player props, over-unders, and more. And right now, Gonzaga is down to 220 odds to win the WCC. And after St. Mary's is lost to Missouri State, woof. We gotta be hitting the odds there for Gonzaga. So if you want to join me in doing so, visit fanduel.com slash locked on and get in on the action this college basketball season. FanDuel, an official partner of the NFL. All right, folks, still any patents, still locked on Zags podcast. Coming at you on this Wednesday edition of our typical mailbag Monday, pushing it back a few days for the holidays. This next question here, we got two of them here before we get to our final segment. This one comes from 808Zag on Discord, who says, what do you think of a primary lineup of Nemhard, Hickman, Watson, Greg, and Ike? Stromer subs in the guards, Huff and Yo subbing the forwards. This lineup allows the starting guards to play 30 or 35 minutes per game. Uh, when you say primary lineup, I'm guessing you mean starting lineup. I'm not sure that it matters if we're just talking about this being the lineup that plays more regularly. Uh, this would be subbing Greg into the starting lineup for Stromer. Look, here's the deal. We've seen Gonzaga's three big lineup. We've seen quite a bit of it this year. And I'm not sure if people are seeing things that I'm not seeing, but I haven't been particularly impressed. I think they're going to continue to run it. And I think that they need to continue to run it but I don't think it should be the primary offense. While it is at the expense of any rest for Hickman and Nemhard, I just don't see this three big lineup or any iteration. This, this one in particular leaves Huff out. Uh, any any iteration, iteration, excuse me, of the three big lineup where either EK or Greg or Huff or even Watson are on the bench. I just, I, have, I haven't loved what we've seen from the three big lineups. In particular, it causes... They're not getting out in transition offensively. It slows the game down to a crawl, which this Gonzaga team has not played at the same pace as Gonzaga teams of the past. Typically, Gonzaga is the top 10, sometimes a top five team in terms of tempo offensively, and we haven't seen that this year. And it's not entirely because of the three big lineup. It's just a personnel thing that just hasn't worked. It's unfortunate because Ryan Nempart is one of the absolute quickest point guards that Gonzaga has ever had. And you can tell he loves pushing the pace. He loves those throw ahead passes. He likes getting out in transition. I think that's what he wants to do. I think that's what Mark Few and Gonzaga wants to do, but they're not able to do it. Uh, in part because of the personnel, but certainly you see even less of it when they run these three big lineups. Outside of that, I know people point out that, that the bigs are all shooting well from three and like, oh, well, floor spacing is not an issue if they run a, a two guard lineup with the three bigs, but it still is. It still is. And, and you, I mean, it's just, you can watch and you can see that when Gonzaga is playing a lineup with Greg Watson and, and EK out there or Greg Watson and Huff or whatever combination it is, the floor spacing is a problem because while Ben Greg can shoot, while Anton Watson can shoot, they're not particularly great at putting the ball on the deck. Watson's got okay ball handling skills. We didn't address that in the pros and cons, but his ball handling is probably something that would fall more in the con category for his draft prospects. But uh, Ben Gregg's not a good ball handler. Braden Huff's not a good ball handler yet. Maybe he will get there. Graham EK is not. Like, none of these guys can put the ball on the deck. And what you need from your three or from somebody who's playing out on the perimeter is not just the ability to hit an open three, but they have to be able to attack a closeout. 
They have to be able to put the ball on the deck, drive to the basket, either then kick it out to another shooter if they get double teamed, drive through contact and try to score, uh, drive, stop, pull up, jump shot from there, stop, pull up, make a pass if a defender has come your way. All those various things you need to be able to do as a wing uh, in order to attack a closeout to 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 basically force defenders uh, to to punish defenders, I should say, if they do come all the way out on you. Those bigs cannot do that. That's not a strength of theirs. It's not a skill set they've really developed. So what happens is the offense stagnates. You try to go to EK down low. He gets a bunch of defenders all over him. He kicks it out to Ben Gregg. Unless Ben Gregg can pull off a really quick three, a defender's out in his face, and then he has to swing it around and they start the offense over again because he can't attack that closeout the way Julian Strother could put the ball on the deck, take two dribbles, hit a floater that he seemed to make 90% of the time. They don't have that player on the roster. And the best version of that player is Dusty Stromer. I would rather him be out there catching those balls, attacking those closeouts, trying to make something happen than one of the bigs. I don't think it's something Gonzaga can entirely avoid, and I don't even think it should be something they avoid. I think playing the three big lineups at times in spurts can be effective because it can the other team is going to get out-rebounded most likely. They have to figure out how to defend three really big players, and in times it can really work, but it does not work offensively. We didn't even get into the defensive side of things, but I don't I don't have the exact numbers. There are There is lineup data on Ken Palm. Maybe I'll pull it for another show or another episode sometime, but Gonzaga's defense, particularly their perimeter defense, when playing the three-big lineup is bad. You see teams just racking up threes, getting open looks, it's the lineup doesn't is not Gonzaga's most efficient lineup offensively or defensively. I love Ben Gregg. This does not have anything to do with Ben Gregg in a vacuum. If I was picking a player to have on my roster for this year between Dusty Stromer and Ben Gregg, I'd probably take Ben, but that doesn't mean he should be in the starting lineup. That doesn't mean that he should be that that's the lineup that should be run. That's better. I think Stromer in the starting lineup is better. I do think the guards need more of a break, and I think there are ways to do that. Playing June more at the three with Dusty sliding down to the two is something I've brought up a handful of times. And again, I'll reiterate, I don't think that the three big lineup should be ignored entirely. I just don't love it as a a primary option for Gonzaga. Next question here. This one comes from Jeff via Gmail. Jeff says, Spokane has hosted the first and second NCAA tournament games five times, 2003, 2007, 2016, 2020, and now 24. Gonzaga has had enough, has had an off year where they did not qualify as a top four seed and were not able to play in Spokane those years, with the exception being 2020. Of course, the COVID year canceled that NCAA tournament. If Gonzaga does not beat at least one of San Diego State or Kentucky, they probably will not be playing in Spokane in 2024. Is there some sort of curse that is preventing Gonzaga from playing NCAA tournament games in Spokane. For the most part, it is only the years when March Madness comes to Spokane that Gonzaga has had off years. Would Gonzaga be better off if the NCAA tournament games were not played in Spokane? Yeah, it's not a curse. Uh, It's not a curse. It's not. Um, I do think it is, in particular, 2016 and 2024. 2020 is just bad luck. I mean, it's just, just the Gonzaga was going to be a one seed. They were going to play in Spokane. It just didn't happen because of the global pandemic. If you want to call that a curse, that's fine. I can understand that. But 2016 and 2024 this year are the most notable examples of Gonzaga's quote unquote off years. 2015-16 was an off year for Gonzaga. They got an 11 seed because they barely made the big dance, went on that nice run in the Sweet 16, thanks to DeMontis Simonis absolutely crushing Jakob Pertl at 
Utah, but that was a bit of an off year. I don't think there's any debate there. But again, I, I think we're still like 2003, Gonzaga had never earned a top four seed. It had never happened. So that wasn't an off year situation. They had never been in that spot. 2007 was coming off of three straight years where they had been a two or a three seed. But I don't think it was an off year. I think it was just that was Adam Morrison's last year. Adam Morrison led them to a two two seeds and a three seed. Left after his junior year, the 2006-2007 team was good, but not that good. And they got a seven seed. At that time, Gonzaga getting a seven seed was like still pretty good. Like this year, getting a seven seed, if that happens, is going to be considered a bad year. In 2007, even coming off of three straight appearances in the top four, that wasn't really considered a, a bad thing. Even in 2016, even in 2016, like in 2015, they were a two seed. So yes, there was a decline after that. They lost Kyle Wilcher. They lost DeMontis Sabonis. They just, or no, excuse me, Sabonis was still there. Um, but they they lost Kevin Pangos, Gary Bell. Those guys were gone. Uh, but then in 2014, they were an eight seed. 2013, of course, was the first year they were a one seed. Before that, they'd been a seven seed and an 11 seed and an eight seed. So it's not like they were routinely getting top four seeds prior to 2016 and then all of a sudden stopped. That will be the case this year if they do not get a top four seed. If they do not get a top four seed this year, which I do agree with the premise that Gonzaga has to beat both San Diego State and Kentucky to remain in that conversation, or at least one of the two, absolutely one of the two, would help to beat both. That would be an anomaly. It would stand out of like, wow, Gonzaga has routinely been a top four seed and this year suddenly they were not. I agree with that. Doesn't mean they're cursed. I like the premise. I like the concept. I think it's interesting to note that there are that certainly the last two years where it was in Spokane in 2020 when the season was canceled uh, and in 2016 when Gonzaga had an uncharacteristically off year. I, I do. It's it's not a I mean, it is a coincidence. I think it's a coincidence, but it is certainly noteworthy. But I don't think it really has any bearing on, on this year. If Gonzaga doesn't make it, it's because they just weren't good enough. That's all it is. We're going to close out the show with discussion on the Lady Zags potential seed in March. We also got a fun mailbag question that you millennials are going to love. All coming up right after this. All right, folks, closing out the show today with a pair of mailbag questions on Wednesday as we get prepared for a preview episode of San Diego State and some conversation about the WCC, especially with the upcoming editions of Oregon State and Washington State later this week. But this question here is another one from Jeff via Gmail. Jeff says, even with the 13-2 non-conference record, the Gonzaga women are about a five-seed in March Madness's women's basketball projections. Could a five-seed be Gonzaga's ceiling? Realistically, how much could an undefeated WCC record help the Gonzaga women and their seeding in March? It was not going to hurt. It's definitely not going to hurt to go undefeated. Certainly, uh, losses will hurt. Any loss in the WCC is going to be a, a problem for the women's team. It's unfortunate that they're in a situation where any loss is potentially as much as a seed line. That's how devastating it could be for this team to lose because the teams in the WCC are not good. There's no good losses in the WCC. It's to an extent an issue on the men's side as well, but on the women's side, it is a significant problem. You lose to Santa Clara on the road, they're like 66th or something in Ken Palm. So that loss you can, or excuse me, the net ranking, that loss you can kind of stomach. But outside of that, you really don't have a lot of wiggle room. Having said that, is Gonzaga's is a five seed the ceiling for Gonzaga? Probably. I think there's a chance they could get a four seed if they go completely undefeated and if teams around them cannibalize themselves. I do think a five seed is the probable ceiling with a seven seed being the likely outcome if they drop a game in the WCC. 
the Pac-12 is going to cannibalize themselves. They do pretty routinely. Uh, Colorado, USC, Stanford, Utah are all seated above Gonzaga right now. But if they drop, you know, if Utah drop loses to all those teams, if USC loses to all those teams, it could push them down to the four or five seed line, potentially opening up a spot for Gonzaga. Big East is a sim- somewhat similar situation. Creighton, Marquette, and UConn, I think we're all five seeds or maybe uh, Marquette was a four seed. Creighton and UConn were a five seed. This is using ESPN's most updated projections, which came out a few hours before I'm recording this. So those are all teams right around Gonzaga's seed line. And if Gonzaga or if those teams were to cannibalize each other, potentially drop down to the sixth line, Gonzaga goes undefeated. I think a five seed's possible. I think a four seed is maybe a pipe dream. It would probably have to have a, a handful of other things fall their way. But hey, one of these teams needs to get a little lucky this year. Maybe that'll be the case for the women's basketball program. Final question here. This was asked a few weeks ago, finally getting around to it. Uh, Wade via Discord, he asks, an off-topic question for fun. If each current player was a Generation 1 Pokemon, which would they be? Yeah, I had a little fun with this one. I didn't do the walk-ons. I just did all of the scholarship players on Gonzaga's roster, picked a Pokemon to talk about. Please let me know what you think about this. Um, It's been a while since I've really dived dove in on Pokemon stuff, but like everybody my age, I collected the heck out of the cards. When I was a kid, I played Pokemon Go and it was really popular six or seven years ago, which makes me feel very old to say that. Uh, so I had a little bit of fun with this. Uh, Graham EK, I went with Gollum. He's incredibly tough. He rolls down the mountain. I was reading some of the, the description of these Pokemon, which was quite fun. Uh, one of the big things about him is he rolls down the mountain and EK comes from Wyoming, where he's at 7,800 feet above sea level, comes to Spokane, where he's at 1,800 feet. So we're going to say that he rolled down a mountain to come to Gonzaga. Uh, One of the strongest Pokemon, one of the strongest players, thought that made some sense there. Uh, Anton Watson, I went with Gyarados. Uh, He took a while to reach his final form, the uh, evolution from Magikarp. Magikarp, one of the weakest Pokemon. Gyarados, one of the strongest. Watson certainly wasn't one of the weakest players on that freshman year team, but he has had quite an evolution, and it took us four years to get where we are, so... Thought that was applicable there. Dusty Stromer is Voltorb, very, very high energy player, very high energy Pokemon, and a bit enigmatic, which I think is kind of a good description of what we've seen from Dusty in his first 10 or so games as well. Nolan Hickman is Poliwhirl, described as very slippery. I think Hickman's ability to drive through traffic and and get to his spots is certainly part of it. Uh, Also, he can cause drowsiness. Poliwhirl can. I don't know if Nolan Hickman can cause drowsiness, but I like the idea of him putting defenders to sleep while getting to the rack. Nemhard is Rapidash. That was an easy one. Rapidash is the fastest Pokemon. Nemhard is, if not the fastest point guard in Gonzaga basketball history. He's certainly in that conversation with guys like Dimitri Goodson and Ryan Woolridge. Ben Gregg is Pikachu because he provides a lot of energy and he is a fan favorite. Uh, that was one of the easiest ones for me to pick there. Uh, Braden Huff is Hypno. Uh, this one, bear with me on this one. The description of Hypno said that he hides from people, but when he is seen, he hypnotizes them and then eats their dreams. And somehow I felt like that applied to Braden Huff. He was he hid last year. Nobody saw him. Nobody knew what he was. And then this year when he comes onto the floor, he eats people's dreams. Felt like that was, that was applicable for me uh, and Braden Huff. Uh, Jun Suk Yo is Machamp, super, super strong, 
really good fighter, really good defender, energy guy, uh, but also just Champ is described as not being good at the delicate things. And for some reason, I feel like that works with Yo too as well, a guy who who maybe the finesse isn't quite there. I think it will be uh, there for him in his in the future, but right now he's a little bit raw and you can see a lot of energy, a lot of enthusiasm, but not a lot of delicateness. So, so that's kind of where that one comes from there. Luka Krajnovic is Eevee because he could become a lot of different things. Eevee can evolve into three different types of Pokemon. Krajnovich, is he going to become a, a starting guard for Gonzaga? Is he a three, four-year backup? Uh, is he Martinez Arlauskas? Like, what? where does uh, Krajnovich's development go from here is, is a big question for this team. And so I think giving him a, a character like Evie, where it could go multiple directions, uh, is a big part of it. And then Pavel, Pavle, excuse me, I've been trying to get his name correct, Pavle Stosic uh, is Magikarp. So not doing much now, but the potential is very high. We don't really know what the potential is with Pathlay right now. It's, we've only seen very, very brief snippets. He didn't even get to campus until late September. Is his ceiling, as the, the evolution into Gyarados, is his ceiling the same as Anton Watson's? My gut says probably not. He probably doesn't get to that level necessarily, but we don't know yet. So right now he's just very kind of just out there confusing, enigmatic, a mystery of sorts, uh, but could end, could end up developing into something really, really great. That's going to wrap us up for today. Hope you all enjoyed having a little fun today on Mailbag Wednesday, as we're calling it here for, for the Locked On Zags podcast. Again, we'll be back later this week. We'll have an episode with a guest talking about the WCC, talking about their additions for 24-25. We'll also, of course, preview San Diego State, Gonzaga's big marquee home non-conference game coming up on Friday. All that on future episodes of the Locked On Zags podcast. Thanks so much for making the show your first listen or your first watch of the day. And until tomorrow, as always, go Zags.